When I needed protection, you were there. When I needed love, you were there. When I needed an escape, you were there. But you didn't help. You harmed. And you didn't love. You lied. And you weren't an escape. You were an addiction. And now I'm learning to help myself, love myself, and escape into my own soul. And I will fight you. And I will win. Fighting with ED, author unknown. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Redeeming Disorder. My name is Lara Bochansky and I normally co-host with Spencer Bledsoe, but he's sadly not able to make today's interview because of a flight delay. So it feels a little funny flying solo here, but we still have a great interview for you today. I sit down with my friend Karen Martin-Grove, a woman who's worn many hats from professional musician to entrepreneur to wife and mother, but she's going to talk about something that we haven't yet covered in this season, which is addiction and more specifically eating disorder. So it's going to be an awesome interview. She has a lot of wisdom to share. She talks about going from full-blown addiction to recovery and the freedom that comes with getting help. So um, I'm not going to waste any time talking to myself here. So let's go ahead and dive right on into the interview. Hi, everyone. We're here with my friend and fellow Nashvillian, Karen Martin-Grove. We met this year through one of the fitness classes I teach and quickly became friends. She let me join her and her friend on an overnight hiking trip last spring, which was amazing and opened my eyes to how much I love hiking. And there in the great outdoors, we talked a lot about life, about some of the struggles we both have experienced. So I knew I had to have her on. She's a great storyteller and we're just really lucky to have her. So Karen, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Laura. And let me just say too, that it was a lot of fun for me to be able to meet you some months ago now. Mm -hmm. And um, you reminded, I told Laura then, but she reminded me a lot of my daughter. (laughs) So it's always fun to have friends of different ages and different walks in life. And it's been a pleasure. So I'm glad to be here. Oh, I was, I felt so lucky. I went on this hiking trip with Karen and uh, and one of her friends and they were training to go um, hike the Alps. And so I just went with them and they, it was humbling. Like they blew me out of the water. They were like a mile ahead of me and I was struggling. So it was really cool. That's only only because you helped us train. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Obviously. Well, anyway, Karen, I we talked a lot uh, on the hike about um, body image issues and um, eating stuff. We both have kind of had our battles with that. Do you, you want to share when that first started? Is that the first experience you had with kind of disorder or did it start with something else? Yes, I would say in terms of behavioral and symptoms that was concrete and I knew there was something that was abnormal or wrong. Um, high school is when I first, you know, I wrestled with, is there something wrong? But I would have to say, I knew somewhere in my junior, senior year of high school that I was eating erratically and I put on a lot of weight and my mom took me to the doctor because she thought there was something wrong with me. And mm. of course, I knew there wasn't anything physiologically wrong with me, but I didn't have the a voice or the freedom to talk about those kinds of things with my mom. However, the abnormal eating patterns began much earlier than that. And I was thinking about it today. And I would say probably as young as 12 or 13, um, eating disorder, as you probably know, is often considered a family disease, since most often there are diseased family systems, which contribute significantly to the melody. And that was true for me, but it was only a part of the puzzle. Um, in my case, I actually had a what I would call a triple helix of personality and mental predispositions wow. setting me on the self-destructive path, which led to the eating disorder. One was growing up in a home where I really was not allowed to have my own voice. And um, that was in the day <laughs> when children were to be seen and not heard. Um, that was a strike against me. And then second was I was female. And in my home, being, uh, well, I grew up in the 60s, basically, in 70s, um, the man was the head of the house, uh, you know, you, I just, as a female, I was one down. So I was a child one down, and the second strike was I was female. Um, second, I had body dis image distortions and faulty thinking, both from family teaching, um, which came from um, my mom and dad, or our home was very religious. And I learned early on, although I can't remember exactly where, but as children often do, they catch things. <laughs> and it's the covert teachings often that are the most powerful ones. But I caught somewhere along the line that a woman's body belonged to the man. And if you loved a man, you kept yourself beautiful for him. Mm -hmm. And the idea of beauty was, as my dad would say, shapely. Mm -hmm. I caught that in a powerful way. And I don't think I ever lost it completely, but uh, it, it definitely was a significant factor in the road that led to an eating disorder. What do you think um, you meant by shapely? Um, n not fat. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, beauty in the face is one thing, but there was a lot of overweight women in the family, mm. and my dad would just make disparaging remarks and then it would always be tied to God mm. so you're not only disappointing your father you're going to disappoint God I mean that's difficult to deal with as a child yeah but I took in because um, mm -hmm. I was a good kid I was a really good kid and then I also because I came of age in the 70s when Twiggy was the 
sort of the model body type. It was an unrealistic model, but Mm -hmm. um, as a prepubescent and pubescent young woman, that's what I thought I needed to be to be beautiful and to be lovely and that my father would find me attractive, not in a weird way, but in that I would be doing something that God would be pleased with as well. And then the third of that triple helix for me is just a natural born uh, perfectionist streak. I was never pretty enough, never thin enough, never good enough, never good enough, Uh even though evidence is pointed otherwise. I mean, I was an award-winning musician, outstanding student. I was homecoming queen. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the badges, but those don't matter Mm -hmm. if the inside if the if the equation doesn't measure up inside, and it didn't for me, so um, those are sort of the early little all those things that swirled about in my mind that I did not understand. They weren't conscious processes, but they were all there, and then it kept growing and building and growing and building, and eventually there has to be a release valve. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I. I really connect with everything you're saying. Um, mm. it's, it's a little eerie, <laughs> but, um, but I think it's so dangerous. I also grew up in a faith community and a lot of my perfectionism is tied to that and with my body and with the faith. And I, why do you think that happens? And why do you think that's dangerous? Because I think it's very dangerous for women. Well, ultimately I think it's, oh. I can get emotional over this because I can get angry over it Mm -hmm. because I think it's a form of abuse and it's never intentional. Like as parents, we never set out to harm our children, but it's subtle and it's so destructive. Um, Why? Why do I think it's destructive? Well, as a child, you're smaller, you're less powerful, you're not on an equal footing, So you want to please your parent, maybe you argue with them and you may not see it the way they see it, but um, they're a human being. So you can sort of chalk that up and say, well, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't know everything, even though he thinks he does. I mean, we all do that as adolescents, Mm -hmm. but with a God, a supreme being, if you're buying into the fact that God is all powerful and all truthful. And what you learned is that he wants you as a woman to be shapely and beautiful for your husband or whatever the message is Mm -hmm. that is wholly not true. You take that in and it is an impossible standard Mm -hmm. to reach. And that's why I think it's, I think it's far worse for um, children. Of course, I can, I really shouldn't make that critical judgment. Um, I was going to say for learning these kinds of messages in a very religious uh, family because of the connection to God, and it just makes it impossible to negotiate, you're going to lose. You're just going to lose. Every way you turn, you're going to lose. So ultimately, it it doesn't have anything to do with the behavior. It has to do with the thinking Mm -hmm. and the believing has to change now did you said you were talking about the model twiggy so before she came along what was was that was there a different ideal body for women at that time 
those are the earliest ones for me. Okay. That it was very thin and thin was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I remember learning about, like during the Renaissance and later on in high school, recognizing that there are different standards of beauty in different cultures at different periods of time in the world. Mm-hmm. But that didn't matter because the images around me uh, were impossibly thin. Mm-hmm. So that's what I had to be. Um, you know, as an aside, I've always had a piss poor metabolism, so that doesn't help. Mm. But that's not the cause. That's a, a very, I think, a small contributing factor. Mm. Like if I'd had an overactive metabolism where I could eat anything I wanted anytime, then perhaps I wouldn't have started throwing up. Mm-hmm. That's plausible. But I don't know. That wasn't the case for me. So did your eating disorder um, growing up come out in the form of bulimia? Yes. Uh, starting with uh, deprivation, I would say, from early on. I mean, I can remember at 12 years old wow. thinking about the Thanksgiving dinner and being afraid. Cause, uh, and, of course, the part of this for me, I don't know about for you, is in terms of the eating disorder, is that food was an addiction for me. I mean, I mean it's an it's a substance. Mm-hmm. It just didn't happen to be alcohol and drugs. It's food. It had enormous power over me. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, a mechanism by which I soothed myself. But the insidiousness of it is that when you soothe yourself with food and you're, you have an eating disorder of any number of varieties, then it creates uh, more of the problem and more of the fear and more of the angst and it's a vicious, vicious cycle, which spins you out of control. And it's the out of control. I, and then I've spoken with a lot of, ad, of addicts over the years, in not just eating disorder people, but addicts of all different <laughs> varieties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the universal experience that is terrifying is the out of control. Mm-hmm. You, you lose control, and that yeah. feels just awful. So one of the things that is hard about an eating disorder and and calling that an addiction is that, you know, other addictions like drug addictions and alcohol and all of that, and those are extremely difficult, but usually the process to um, getting healing from those addictions is total sobriety Mm. and, and, and not having alcohol and not having drugs, but with food. You need food to survive. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so what? how does that make that different for someone who's I going think, through? I think it makes it very difficult. You can't just put the substance aside. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for every person, it's different. But an eating disorder, which I, I think in general, the addictions, there's crossovers, it's just a different substance. Um, it's not the substance and it's not the addiction that's the problem. Mm-hmm. You got to solve the underlying problem and then the behaviors will cessate over t- may take you know months, years, but once the the underlying reasons why this particular behavior takes hold of you and wreaks havoc in your life, once those are gone, then the addiction loses its power. That is my experience and continues to be my experience. Mm-hmm. I still have a tendency 
to soothe with food. Mm-hmm. And um, in some ways, it makes perfect sense because that's so primal. That's what we first learn is food and love. They go mm-hmm. together, you know, from the, our first experience of nursing. It's nurture and love. Um, so, yeah, it gets haywire because of a lot of other things. But um, I do think it's uniquely difficult and different because of the eating part. You have to, it's fuel for survival. Right. Well, you mentioned earlier that things kind of came to a head for you um, when you were in your, was it your late teens? Actually, after college. Okay. Um, I'm, I just kind of limped along through high school, um, kept it very secret. I was terrified because I was a good kid and I did that, you know, I was, I did everything right. I was the helper, not the help E. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> <Relate>. <laughs> yes. So after college, I moved out of state to continue my education. And then I went through a moderate severe depression with the concomitant food deprivation, binge eating, and bulimia. By then, it was a cycle. This time, the severity of the cycle frightened me enough that I began a therapeutic relationship focusing on the behaviors, which, of course, later I realized it wasn't really the behaviors that needed treating. It was what lies beneath. But also, I wanted to mention that I had a group of deeply caring friends who are friends to this day who encouraged, cajoled, and begged me to get help. So... um, I think that was pivotal, and I think it's so pivotal often in many, many stories because when you're lost in the forest, you need other people's eyes and hands and feet to help you find the way. So I'm deeply grateful for those um, individuals. So they encourage you to go see a counselor, or what did that look like? Yeah, yeah, and then, of course, I happened to – one of the friends was – and she's still a dear friend to this day. She's a Ph.D. psychotherapist psychotherapist yeah so she had a lot of friends in the industry and but for me the the hardest part um was the giant step across the threshold of i am imperfect i am broken i am an addict i need help it was utterly humiliating Mm. it was shameful it was emotionally crushing and possibly the most freeing moment of my life. Wow. Because I didn't have to pretend anymore. I didn't have to try to be strong anymore. I started then to learn to love myself as an imperfect person. And um, it was the beginning. Yeah. It was the well, beginning of, of new life for me. I, I was, this was funny. I was teaching this fitness class last night and everybody was kind of going around saying, oh, I was so bad over break and, oh, I ate all this horrible food and, oh, you know, and I'm reading this book um, by Brene Brown called Rising Strong and in it she's, she says this over and over, this phrase, and, I'm, and it's challenging me, but it's I'm doing the best I can. And I think mm. for a perfectionist that's so hard to say because we think, no, we can do better. <laughs> uh-huh, and, uh-huh. But I think there is something really freeing and, and healing in saying that. So it's like humiliating and it, it is this weird 
uh, crazy tangle of emotions with that that comes with saying that and with self-acceptance and is that kind of what you were referring to yes and I would also say that uh what was the statement you said Brene Brown I'm doing uh I'm doing the best I can it's ultimately a statement of Mm self-love because we're not automatons we're human beings and some days we can perform at a higher level or we feel stronger. I mean, this is true with your fitness Mm -hmm. experience. There are days you have more physical strength and there are days you don't. And does it mean anything like I'm a lesser person, a better person or a worse? Certainly not. Mm -hmm. It's just the, you know, the fluctuation of, of living life and being a human being. Hugely important lesson. Hugely. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning it. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, so when you went to therapy for the first time, what was that like for you? Scary, very (laughs) frightening. Um, uh, but once I started, I threw myself into it and I suppose that's typical of me. I'll put a lot of energy into something that, you know, that would be true for you too, right? (laughs) You don't do anything. We don't don't do anything halfway. (laughs) No, 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 no. So um, I gave enormous energy and time and focus to that healing process. And I would say that having a knowledgeable, empathic, and committed therapist was very important. But equally important was having people in my life who walked alongside me, who loved me and challenged me when I became weary in well-doing. I had to learn to love myself. I had to find my own voice. I had to learn how to be angry. I had to learn how to express emotions. These are huge things. They don't happen overnight. But I started. And um, then it was, well, dare I say fun, (laughs) That probably is not the right term, but I would say energizing Mm -hmm. and hope-giving and life-giving and um, what's the opposite of boring? Exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I would say it had moments of excitement because for the first time I felt like I was finding out who I was. Mm -hmm. I had hoped for not living in the you know, the misery that I'd been living in for a lot of years. Now, that's not to say, as you well understand, that living in the misery, I was still an incredibly and highly functional person. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't fun living like that. Yeah. Well, not at all. I, that's actually, I love that about you, that you, you really do, you're very authentic. And you say, I, I, I would be surprised to catch you saying a white lie. Like <laughs> you just don't, you just don't do that. But I love that because I feel like I can trust what you say, and um, and I think that probably comes with learning how to use your voice and to oh. ha- practice um, self acceptance to such an extent that you can speak your mind without judgment. Um, right. That's something that I'm still learning. <laughs> and I and I do. And part of that um, probably capacity also is born out of not everybody in the world is going to like me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so (laughs) that's okay. 
and there's now there's a lot of people that I think I come across a little bit too strong for, or my approach is needs to be subtler for some people. And my intention is never to be harmful or hurt feelings, but, um, you know, different strokes for different folks. Not everybody has to like me and I don't like everyone. Well, I like I you. need a few <laughs> good friends. Yeah. So what did it look like? So you went to therapy. Did you do, try any other types of treatments and when you're, or is it just oh. one with a counselor or? Yes. One on one. Did I do anything else in terms of formal sort well, of treatments? You, men- you mentioned you know? um, meeting other addicts, and I was just curious if you'd done group counseling oh, or anything like that. Yes, I did some group counseling, and I think that's very helpful to engage with fellow strugglers, um, finding out you're not alone, hmm. and that's very powerful. So I did go to some group therapy sessions. I went to several, um, well, I used to go with a friend who was an alcoholic to Alcoholics Anonymous. I found the experience incredibly fascinating because I love the camaraderie and the the honesty these people have. You know, one thing that's true of very broken people is you lose the pride. Hmm. So then you can have these amazing connections that don't take years to build. It's like we're all here for the same reason and there's huge acceptance. There's a paucity of judgment. It's just one struggler helping another, a blind man helping the other to the bread. But I went to a couple, maybe more than a couple, um, Overeaters Anonymous group and I did not like that group. Hmm. It was too, I guess it was people maybe were struggling on a more severe level, there was something about it that it didn't, I did not find it helpful. So I didn't go anymore. Yeah. I, I've had but the I, same experience where I was like, this is really for me. <laughs> yeah. And therein lies though, a truth, which is, you know, we have to find the tools that work for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to be willing to go and find them. Yeah. Suffering, silence and misery won't help you get better. So it sounds like the tools for you has been one-on-one and then some group. And then are there any other tools that maybe aren't, you know, official, you know, therapy treatment? Well, I I did enormous amounts of reading Mm -hmm. on eating disorders, on addiction in general, um, on grace, on self-love. There was probably a period of five to eight years there where I just inhaled what I could find, um, to read and educate myself. Um, and that was helpful as I would say that was very much a tool. Mm-hmm. And then a few honest souls to bear your, yourself with and feel accepted by and love you along the way. I'm just curious, when did you feel that feeling of out of control? When I would start binge eating. Okay. And stop. that's, yeah, that's the addiction part where it's in your head, and once it's in your head, you know you're going to act on the behavior, mm-hmm. and you can't it, like, you can't get a, a grip on it. And then there was really only a period of probably three or four years where I actually got into the bulimia aspect of it, but that was just terrifying because you know you're harming yourself. It's a really self-destructive behavior, and and yet I couldn't control it, and it was terrifying. 
absolutely terrifying to me. And when I would get into it, it would be a spiral and I would spiral down. And then at some point, and I, it's been years now, I mean, it's been decades. So I don't remember what it looked like. I mean, there was always an end point, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how I got there. Maybe just, I just, you know, went to sleep or I, I just don't remember. And then I would try harder and I would do all right for a while and then then I wouldn't. Uh, but I never, never during all those years uh, had a normal relationship with food where you sat down and you ate a meal and you felt like it was nourishing you and it was satisfying. And then you got up from your plate and you went and did life. Like that was, that was not even a foreign, it didn't exist for me. That's Food was three times a day experience. Yeah. That. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, the out of control was the worst part for me. Because hmm. I knew I was spiraling and I, I didn't know when I would reach the bottom. And I didn't know how to rescue myself. I couldn't. During, you know, during the the years that it was, it really ruled my life. That's what I thought about. That's what I was terrified over. And, um, yeah, I I remember reading or seeing an interview with someone one time where she said, I got up every day and I prayed, God, protect me from food. And every time I would walk into a room, she said, I would pray, God, protect me from food. Just thought, how horrible. Food is like one of the greatest pleasures in life, and it's we're meant to enjoy it, and it gives us nourishment and fuel. And, I don't know, but like many, so many of the be- most beautiful things in life, if they're turned upside down, they get pretty ugly. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the food in itself. It's not alcohol in itself. It's it's what we do with it. Sometimes it's what we do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what? I've heard this over and over again about the relationship of shame and addiction. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even without addiction, I think everyone experiences shame. But what, mm-hmm. from your experience, what do you see the relationship there? I had, I would say from a fairly young age, a lot of shame about my body. Um, it wasn't it didn't look the way that it was supposed to look and now from this vantage point looking backward i just can hardly believe that i thought that hmm. like where did i really buy into that how could i have had how could have my self perception been so wrong for such a long time um, you know i wasn't thin but i wasn't obese and i was fully functional and my legs work. My face was good enough. Mm-hmm. I had friends. I don't really understand that part, but I can tell you from very early on, I felt enormous shame um, about, um, yeah, my body. It wasn't okay. Never was. Did you... Did you, a lot of people who have eating disorders try to hide their body, wearing really baggy clothing? Always. Yeah. Yes. I had one, uh, I remember seeing this one therapist 
for a while, and whenever I would come in, he would make me take off my jacket. He would make me take off whatever excess clothing I had on down to a T-shirt or something. That was humiliating for me, but I did it. I mean, he made me do it. <laughs> do you think that helped? Him. I'm so I've never heard that. Um, do I think it helped? Yes, I I do. Um, I couldn't tell you maybe all the reasons why it helped. But one point I would be able to say without hesitation is that it helped me approach fear. And it was, uh, well, it sounds, the word silly isn't the best word, but it was silly fear. Um, So I found out that I could take off my jacket and we could have a fine dialogue and, you know, life went on. Hmm. So from that I would say yes from that one perspective. Did it help me learn to accept myself? Mm, no. That, that's much deeper. But, you know, it's you approach it from all different directions. It was fine. Maybe it worked for some people. I don't know. Yeah. And the, and the other part about that uh, experience was that he was a male therapist. Mm. So, well, and most of my fear was about, you know, my body, how it would be seen by a man because uh, – that's what was the most important. Right. Because if a man didn't love you, then you really weren't worth all that much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How's that? that. <laughs> I like throwing up in my mouth, but yeah. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, I so I had the privilege after college, I was trying to figure out what in the world I was doing with my life. And I um, had this internship at this out inpatient eating disorder clinic in Chicago. It's called Arabella House. And that experience, it was just, uh, I think, about two months. But it that experience changed my life. Um, it was very eerie to be around all these women who were struggling with it. They were all living in this house together. And uh, my job was just basically to hang out, talk, and clean the bathroom <laughs> you know stuff like that but it was mealtime it was intense everyone mm. had to eat everything that was on their plate even mm. if you didn't like it um people sat there you could sense the fear the trepidation the anger it was very uncomfortable um a lot of nervous laughter a lot of just kind of pushing food around on the plate with the fork and but I I had never seen you know I had had my struggles but I had not seen people at this extreme end um who were suffering with this addiction Mm. and um and yeah I mean I after my two months, you know, I don't know what happened to those ladies, um, you know, if they're still struggling with it. But did you was that what was that what it was like when you would sit down with a friend and you know, whether or not they knew that you had this issue with food, was it a struggle? Um, did you feel like people were watching you as you ate? Were you, you know, mindful of like what you were you know, how much you put on your fork? Like what was that what went through your mind as you ate? One of two things. Either it was a day I was eating 
and then I would eat anything and not care. Mm-hmm. Or if it was more of the time, then yes, I was very careful um, to order small amounts. And yeah, I was an experience always filled with fear, with anxiety, and it ruled my life, mm-hmm. I would say. I, I it would be a rare occasion where I went out and actually sat down with someone over a plate of food and enjoyed it. I just, that was a, an experience that didn't exist for me. And I would always take, uh, I would, you know, I would watch people uh, intensely to see how they ate and how much they ate. And then I would wonder, you know, it's like, how can they do that? And yeah. All those tapes playing in your head, but if I eat this, then you know this will happen, and then I'll spiral downhill. And so, it was um, always a point of terror. I would use the word terror. Were there any foods that were triggers for you? Absolutely, sugar foods, sweet foods, treat treat foods. Because I could eat salads all day long, but and then I would be being good. But if I wasn't in a good state of mind, then I would be bad. And then I would do um, evil things to myself, like eat all kinds of ice cream or cookies or cake or brownies or whatever it was that I wouldn't eat when I was in a more positive state of mind. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's funny, as you were saying that, you're saying, I am bad or I am good. And, and yep. that's... Totally the shame language, right? (laughs) Assigning value to what we do rather than just having value for being. Absolutely. Do you know anyone that has an eating disorder that ever uh, binges on carrots or (laughs) broccoli or no? So I know that you're, you've been a professional musician and I'm just curious, did you ever see any overlap with being a musician and with the eating and I'm just curious because it's such a creative um, profession and a lot of times they say creativity and creating is healing. Did you find music to be a safe place for you? Oh, I have to think about that. Not really. Um, I was good at it and in some respects, I think that's why I kept doing it. Although I'm a music lover, but I don't think I, I don't see a crossover Okay. other than perhaps I'm very intuitive and I'm really a sensitive sort of person like a lot of creative people are. And so in that respect, I don't dance lightly on the earth. <laughs> I take things in very deeply. Yeah. Um, and I think that, you know, it often goes hand in hand with creative types. Do you think it's possible for someone who's had an eating disorder to learn how to be healthy and how to love their body and love food again? Yes. And Aren't how, you glad I said that? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> point. I'm so happy to hear that. But how have you found that in your life? It has been a long obedience in the same direction. Hmm. And like so many other learning curves in life, you make a couple steps forward and then maybe you inch back and then you move forward. All of the underlying 
realities or problems that contributed to my experience of an eating disorder were large life lessons, none of which are learned in a short period of time. They're learned over a long period of time. But once I was set on the healing pathway for you know, for the most part, I have stayed there. I enjoy food. Most of the time, I do not fear it. And I think I have a pretty normal relationship with food. And um, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't have experience of bulimia or starving and haven't had for decades now. I don't, don't expect that I would ever have to experience that again. Mm-hmm. But I do think that once an addict, always an addict, it's dormant. But given the right set of circumstances, could I? Yeah, I'm a human being. Those are, you know, I had certain predispositions. They're still there. But the the larger truths for me is that I am a person who accepts myself. I'm far more le- less judgmental of myself and, of course, less judgmental of other people. For the most part, I love who I am. Mm-hmm. And um, it's good enough. Life is good enough. I'm good enough. Um, and I see I've been able to integrate to a much healthier degree the the light and dark of being a human being. So now I don't I'm not all good. I'm partly really bad and um and it's okay. Yeah, my your... husband still loves me, my kids <laughs> like me, you know. The dog does sometimes. <laughs> has your um has your faith changed? As you've gone through the healing process from when you were young to now? My faith certainly has changed, but I'm not sure I would attribute it to the eating disorder. Um, I haven't thought about that a lot. Um, So I used to think or believe that God was, it was very important to him what we did or did not do and black and white and following the rules. Uh, And I don't anymore. I think that he loves me. He wants me to do good. He understands when I don't make the mark. And <laughs> that's uh, my faith is much simpler <laughs> than it used to be. Okay. But I still believe that um, I still believe in a higher power called God. And I believe that that entity created me and loves me. So, Karen, what would you tell a younger version of yourself? I would tell young Karen that needing and asking for help is not weakness. It is an act of incredible strength and courage. You don't need to try so hard. You are lovely. Mm -hmm. That's what I would tell young Karen. Because she was. What advice would you give our listeners who might be dealing with an addiction or even an eating disorder? It's similar. Ask for help. Mm -hmm. If you don't ask for help, you probably won't get it. Don't let fear or despair or apathy or whatever else that it might be Keep stealing the beauty of your life's precious moments away. Admitting weakness is a holy, courageous thing to do. Mm -hmm. Only then can you begin to change. Don't keep 
the terrible secret to yourself. Find a group of fellow strugglers. Learn to love yourself. That's beautiful. That's a great place to end. So, Karen, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I really enjoyed this, and I think our listeners will too. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Laura. Wow, great advice and wisdom from Karen Martin Grove about finding the help you need to experience self-compassion and find freedom. If you're struggling with an eating disorder today or any addiction for that matter, I hope you take that courageous step to getting help. Your life can look different. But uh, thank you guys for hanging in there with me today. I promise that next week Spencer will be back with all of his big words that I have to look up and his eloquence. But seriously, you didn't feel the same without him. So, But until then, please continue to share, subscribe, and leave us a review on iTunes. You have no idea how much it means to hear from you guys via email or Twitter. So please don't hesitate to contact us. Our website is redeemingdisorder.wordpress.com. It honestly fuels the fire to keep going. So thank you, everyone, and see you next week.